I want to remind you this morning that in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus taught, what he's bringing to bear upon all of us today, as he was his own disciples, is that there ought to be in them true spiritual distinctives. And these things mark them out from the others around them, and they do today for us in the, uh, the society in which we live. They mark us out, even from others who would proclaim to be religious, but who have no real spiritual reality within them. There are to be true spiritual distinctives amongst the Lord's people. And so Jesus is teaching that a life which has been and is being transformed by the grace of God will be seen and evidenced through graces and behaviours very different to those portrayed by others. And in Jesus' day, of course, he refers constantly to the religious elite within Jewish society, the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it was in verse 20 of chapter 5 that Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's what this whole sermon is actually about. Well, what is this righteousness which does surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Well, the heart of the matter is revealed in the state of our heart. And what is described in the Beatitudes in verses 3 to 9 is that heart change which occurs in all who humble themselves before God with a broken and a contrite heart. Those who have confessed and renounced their sins and turned to the Lord in faith. Those verses, 3 to 9, they are a description of a Christian believer, one who truly belongs to the Lord. The Pharisees were all about the performance of external rites and rituals and ceremonies and fastidious keeping of a seamlessly, seemingly endless list of do's and don'ts. Theirs was a self-attained righteousness as they saw it, by virtue of personal endeavour and achievement. But as we've seen in our studies in Romans, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What the law achieves is showing us just how sinful we are by showing us just how helpless we are in trying to keep the law of God. We just cannot do it. We don't have it within us. We don't have the spiritual capacity to be able to keep God's law. No one can keep God's law to God's standard. And actually, there's a, a very real sense in which the physical keeping of God's law is actually secondary to the state of our heart before him. Hence, Jesus explaining in this very sermon that even without doing anything, we can be guilty of crimes as serious as murder and adultery. Simply on the basis of what's gone on in here and in here. 
but haven't actually done anything. Crimes which under Old Testament law were so serious, they carried the death penalty. And we can be guilty simply by means of the thought and intent of our heart. Of course, that's the very phrase used all the way back in Genesis chapter 6 as God decided he was going to flood the world to rid it of its wickedness because the thoughts and intents of people's hearts was only evil continually. The message of the gospel is that Jesus and his righteousness is the answer to our dilemma. The perfect righteousness of Christ And not merely that Jesus was a better Pharisee than the Pharisees when it came to law-keeping. He did keep the law perfectly in terms of his physical behaviour and his speech. But much more than that, there was never even the slightest taint or hint of sin in his thought life, in his emotional life, in his devotional life. It wasn't merely that outwardly he was able to hold it all together. In his heart and in his mind and in his imagination, he was holding it all together before God. His was a perfect righteousness. And for you, if you're a Christian in daily living, it's everything which springs from having a changed and renewed heart as one who's been brought to repentance and faith in this Jesus, one who is born again. And what that begins to produce within you and how that then starts to flow out of you. This practical outworking of the righteousness of Christ. That's what this sermon by Jesus is about. This newness of life which the Christian believer has in Christ. And this is that righteousness which exceeds that of the Pharisees because it does not come from your personal effort and performance. It is the result of God graciously being at work within you by Christ Jesus. And this is not to be confused with that imputed righteousness in justification, which we've been thinking about in Romans, where God actually declares you as a Christian in Christ to be right before him. And that is a once-for-all done deal, which has no variation, has no degree. It has no, well, I'm only only 50% justified compared to you because you're at 75%. No, you're either justified or you're not. You're either in Christ or you're not. You're either a child of God or you're not. But in all who are in that place of being justified, of course, there is then this ongoing outworking of this grace of God within your life, which changes you. It has to. It must. And it's this life of the Christian, this new mind, this new heart, this new lifestyle of the Christian believer, which Jesus is talking about so much in this sermon. And what Jesus proceeds to do for us is bring out some examples and illustrations of how our lives ought to be different 
from the false religion of these salvation by works Pharisees and teachers of the law. And many of the issues which Jesus selects here would actually have been topics which the Pharisees were well known for in their outward boasting. In their supposed religious fervour, the Pharisees were noted for doing things in a very conspicuous way so that they were seen by people. The Pharisees loved their public reputation. They loved to be praised and revered and looked up to. Not much meekness on display in your typical Pharisee. They loved to flaunt their supposed good works. When Jesus told that little story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying and picturing the Pharisee parading himself on the street corner, how I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these sinners, that wasn't a wicked caricature that Jesus was portraying. Uh, many of the people would have been nodding their heads. Yes, that's the Pharisees, all right. And that's not how it is for those who truly belong to Christ. And have you noticed that as this sermon proceeds, there are specific categories that Jesus is highlighting as he teaches? In chapter 5, Jesus highlights what we might call relational distinctives between false and true saints of God. Perhaps just have chapter 5 to hand, and let's just glance our way through it just briefly for a moment. All the things that Jesus is talking about here are the things that affect us in our dealings with one another. From verses 21 to 26, anger and harbouring grudges. Verses 27 to 30, adultery and sexual fidelity. 31 to 32, divorce and marital faithfulness. Verses 33 to 37, being men and women of your word, having integrity, keeping promises. Verses 38 to 42, being meek and merciful and generous towards others. 43 to 48, loving your enemies. And into the opening verses of chapter 6, being loving and charitable towards others. These relational distinctives that ought to be seen in God's people. The Pharisees wouldn't have been known for many of those qualities. And they deal with how we're to relate to others. The impression that others are left with after they've had dealings with you and me. And then next, Jesus moves on to what we might call religious duties. Things which ought to be, things which must be part of our lives as Christian believers. But we're to go about them in a certain way. We're to go about them in a certain attitude. And Jesus talks about that on the issue of prayer in verses 5 to 15. And he points out the really bad examples No, he says, not like that, but like this. This is the Christian believer at prayer. This is what it looks like and sounds like when the Christian is praying. Verses 
for the Pharisees, even prayer had become a public performance to impress anyone who might care to watch and listen. And these perhaps were amongst the worst of the Pharisees' sinful traits because that which was meant to be about having earnest, heartfelt dealings with the living God had merely become a show to impress an audience. In future weeks, we'll see how Jesus begins to address the inner person, the real you. So there are three distinct categories being tackled by Jesus here. Relational distinctives, religious duties, because there are things which as Christian men and women we, we must do, and then in future weeks, the real you. And on the subject of religious duties, having dealt with prayer, Jesus comes next to fasting in verses 16 to 18. Now we're going to do a couple of things with the rest of our time this morning. First of all, we're going to consider what fasting is. Uh, Then we're going to take note of what fasting isn't. And then we're going to think about how this whole subject relates to you and me. Fasting, what it is. Well, fasting is to go without food. And in the Bible, periods of fasting amongst God's people are prompted by certain things. Now, it's important to note that fasting is often a solitary thing done by an individual. And the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 suggest that that often still will be the case. Although sometimes fasting is done corporately with others, certainly amongst believers. Frequently, fasting takes place in order to facilitate earnest, uninterrupted prayer. Fasting and prayer frequently are placed alongside one another and become part of the same thing in the Bible. It's often an expression of a deep conviction of sin, It's often a realisation of the need to get right with God. Sometimes fasting was in response to overwhelming grief or distress and it was a crying out to God for help and strength. On other occasions, it's a seeking of God's will in difficult circumstances that the Lord's people might know which way to go and what they should do. So let's just listen to a few examples in the Bible where this whole topic is mentioned. 1 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 3, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths among you. Prepare your hearts for the Lord. Serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So this is clearly a really serious situation that they're in. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Samuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together, drew water, poured it out before the Lord and they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And it was that deep conviction of sin that led them to spend a time fasting 
before him. King David, as his sins with Bathsheba are uncovered, 2 Samuel 12, David said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. Ezra, chapter 8. I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones, and all our possessions. They were in a really serious time. And so a fast was proclaimed that they might gather before the Lord together, all their focus upon him. Nehemiah, the opening, the opening words of Nehemiah chapter 1, I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, Who'd arrived, who survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem's broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Do you see the context in which fasting and praying is mentioned here in the Old Testament? It's as the people in their great need and their great distress under great conviction of sin, they cry out to the Lord. They know, I have to get this right with God. And this is going to take time. And time is given. And if it means we go without food for that time, well, what is that? An earnest, heartfelt response before the Lord is what prompts these things in the Bible. A genuine humbling of yourself before God, a pleading with God, confessing of sin before God. It's a sign of real submission to God. It's a mark of utter reliance and dependence upon God. That's what drives these times of prayer and fasting in the scriptures. It's not a mechanical thing. Well, let's try prayer and fasting and maybe that will work. No, these things are heart-driven in the Lord's people. Being here before the Lord like this, there is no better place. There is no other place. This is our only hope. That's what drives prayer and fasting in the Scriptures. And the New Testament pattern is similar. There was an occasion when the disciples had been unable to heal a boy who was demon-possessed. And what was it that Jesus said? This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Jesus himself was not a stranger to fasting as he did business with his heavenly father 
in the place of prayer. When we read of Joseph and Mary going to the temple with the newly born Jesus, we read of those two different people, those two elderly people who they met in the temple. One was Simeon, the other was Anna. And it says of Anna, in her old age, served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And that came from her heart. You recall last week I quoted from uh, Paul in Acts chapter 14, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The apostles and their travelling companions, they knew many trials and afflictions and much opposition. Time and again, whenever they preached the gospel, people turned against them. It wasn't a bed of roses in the early church or for the apostles as they preached the gospel. But after we read those words, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, this is what the very next verse says. When they had appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here are gospel preachers with people responding and being converted and being added to the church, knowing that as soon as those people do that, they're going to know hardships and afflictions and trials. They know that those new churches which are just being established are going to have great, great uh, trials to overcome. Many, many things that will make life difficult for them. And so elders are appointed in every church and they pray and they fast together because they know these people are going to need the Lord so much <laughs> as if no other church does. <laughs> and so they plead to, with the Lord in prayers and fasting. Now there's no direct instruction as to when a Christian ought to fast and pray. It seems that often in the Bible, it's actually almost an instinctive thing to do because it is very often heart-driven before the Lord. There's no sign in the Bible that even in the New Testament church it was an ordered or planned thing. For example, in the same way that we read of the church meeting on the Lord's Day, in the same way that we know that they regularly celebrated the Lord's Supper, um, it doesn't speak of fasting in that kind of way. But it is clear that when confronted with circumstances that cause them to feel a particular burden, that they knew we must take this to the Lord in prayer and we must remain there until the Lord grants us this real sense of peace that we've been heard and he has listened and he will answer. And we're going to have that dealing with the Lord in prayer. And then it is that the Christian, or even a group of Christians, or even a whole church, will pray on with fasting. So there's no specific prescription for it. Do it here, do it there, do it when this happens. But it clearly is the unburdening of your heart before the Lord. It's a deep leaning upon him, a deep seeking after him. 
and even at this point in my own preparation, the thoughts are running through my own mind just how much and how often do I find myself there, really there. That depth of unburdening before the Lord, that depth of acknowledgement of my great reliance upon him that drives you to prayer. That's what fasting is. And what it isn't, secondly, what it isn't. In contrast to that, all the Pharisees had established for themselves uh, was a, a tradition of fasting. They would do it religiously twice every week, believing that this form of self-denial somehow impresses God and commends them to him as super spiritual people. But actually, the Pharisees also cared that all the hoi polloi out there should know that they've been fasting. Look at me. Do you notice what I've been doing? Can you see what I've been doing yesterday? Isn't it obvious just how more spiritual uh, I am than you? And in order to increase the impact, uh, they would try to make it look as though their fasting was actually having a detrimental effect upon their health. Do you see what I'm subjecting myself to? Uh, do you see how far I'm taking this for God? Is this not a remarkable degree of dedication to God that I'm putting myself through? And it was all, it was all for them out there watching, for their response, for their applause. They were basically sitting in the makeup chair like an actor, making themselves up for the part. If they'd had access to latex face masks, they'd have been in their element playing around with those. They had to make do with rubbing ash into their faces, contorting themselves to make themselves look pallid and drawn. You can imagine them spending hours in front of a mirror perfecting the look. That's all it had become for them. It was all, it was all for their audience out on the street and to outdo one another. I hope you don't need me to tell you that such nonsense gets us nowhere with God. And Jesus declares that they've already got the only reward that they're ever going to receive. The issue with the Pharisees and their attitude toward fasting is not dissimilar to those in the Old Testament, who went through all the rituals of law-keeping in the tabernacle or the temple, but their own hearts were just as far away from the Lord. Uh, to them, God, God declared repeatedly it wasn't cold, dutiful law-keeping that he wanted from them. It was heartfelt obedience. God values that far more than their empty-hearted sacrifices. I wonder, maybe there are some here this morning. Did you simply put on your Sunday mask before you left home?
What's needed is a real saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, which drives you to him. That's what we need. That's what we must pray for, for one another. So what about fasting for you and me? Well, there's no direct commandment to fast. Going by the number of times fasting is mentioned in the New Testament, whilst it was something very familiar to Christians in those days, it doesn't seem to have been something that was done in a routine way, or what we might call regularly. For example, in the much-quoted verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, where we get this little summary of what it meant to be a Christian in the early church, what does it say there? Well, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. It doesn't mention fasting. That may well be that as part of their praying they did fast, but it's not mentioned specifically so that our attention is drawn to it. It makes no mention of fasting such that fasting was also something that must be done as routinely as all of these other things. Nevertheless, references to fasting are not scarce in the New Testament either. It seems to me that those believers were more likely to turn to times of fasting and prayer than many believers today would do so. I wonder, might it be true, uh, generally across the board today within the Christian church, the thought of spending more than an hour in prayer would be greeted by Christians today as something inconceivable, extreme, even ridiculous? Spend more than an hour praying? How or why would I want to do that? What on earth would I pray for for that length of time? If that is the case, maybe that goes some way to explaining why the church is the way it is today. Maybe that helps to explain why we see so few coming to faith. Perhaps the church in general, and maybe even this church, we've lost a proper biblical notion of the place and need of prayer. To the degree that fasting to pray would never even occur to us. Is there some truth in that? We'd never dream of praying for so long that we'd need to fast. Is that true today? There is another way of looking at fasting, however, which I must just mention, and that's to forego eating to replace it with prayer, to not eat at mealtimes, and instead to use the time to pray. So you're at work, and it's your break time in the middle of the day, and you spend that time praying. That's another way to view it. But again, would we even think of doing that? 
The whole issue here, you see, is to take seriously the need to set time aside, to commune with God in prayer. The need to do it, the value in doing it, that God would actually respond to people who pray like that, that it would actually make a difference. Let me remind you that Jesus once told his disciples that the particular thing that they had wanted to, to see God do, God had not done because they had not given themselves to prayer and fasting. I wonder what the tendency is today. Well, we blame the church program because God's not doing what we want God to do. We're not running the right activities. We're not doing this. We're not doing that. We're not doing the other. Well, maybe it's just because we don't pray the way we should. And in closing, Jesus impresses upon his hearers that this, for the most part, well, actually, it's a very personal and intimate thing between you and the Lord. He talks about fasting in similar vein to the way he talks about praying. He talks about it being in the secret place between you and God. That's not to say it can't be two or three gathered together. That's not to say it can't be the church together. But it seems that on the whole, it's a very intimate thing between you and your God and Saviour. Others don't need to know. In fact, says Jesus, you should do everything you can not to draw attention to yourself over it. Why does Jesus mention these things in this sermon as he's speaking to his disciples? Well, you see, I believe Jesus wants you and me to enjoy the same blessings in the place of prayer which he himself enjoyed. He relied much on personal communion with his heavenly Father. He wants you to as well. It's in that place of prayer with God where all the privileges that you enjoy as a Christian come more clearly into focus for you and do their work within you. To know God as your refuge and strength. Not to talk about it, but to know him as that, as your refuge, as your strength, that he is your very help in times of trouble. It's there in the place of prayer where those things will become so much more real to you. To know his comfort and peace and grace. To be led into the truth of his word and to know his will. To be assured of your salvation and your place within his kingdom. To fulfill all of the responsibilities that you have as a Christian in your daily living, in your home, in the church, in your employment, wherever it may be. Jesus was able to cast out the demon from that boy after the, after the disciples couldn't. And it wasn't because he, being God, had some kind of spiritual ace up his sleeve that he could pull out that the disciples couldn't. Jesus didn't say, it's only the likes of me that can heal that boy. No, he said it's it's people who would fast and pray like me. 
who could deal with that boy. And it's people who are ready to fast and pray who God's waiting to use today, you see. Looking to Christ, listening to Christ, learning of Christ, obeying Christ, consumed by Christ with a heart for God your Father by his Spirit. That's what makes a Christian distinct in the world. By God's grace, that will be you and that will be me if we will learn to pray.